Hey, this is Laura. And Steven. And this is our podcast, Midday Musings, where we take our lunch break to talk about the things that are on our mind. Today, we're talking soft pants through the ages, Middle Ages, the ancient world, and a little bit about the Knights Templar. Let's get into it. Hey, Steven. Hi, Laura. How are you on this very fine day? On this fine day, I am also very fine. If I oh, do I say was gonna so say. myself, mm-hmm. bobbing and weaving, looking fly, looking sharp. That's me all day, every day in mm-hmm. my pajama pants, you know, looking looking fly, looking sharp. Sharp as re- recently sharpened pencil. Taking, taking meetings in pajama pants. Actually, I have real pants on today. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. You are not taking advantage of the work from home pleasure font of soft pants? Well, no. I had an appointment this morning, so I went out. I can't go out into the world in pajama pants. That's true. That's... Mm-mm. That would be untoward. No, people, people, they have a reaction to it. Like, you could do it in college, but if you wander around in pajama pants in the real world, people... Depending on how, like, kempt or unkempt you are, they might think you're homeless. I guess it depends. I don't know. I appreciate when I see people wandering around in pajama pants. I love that because I want to do that. Right? (laughs) It's a huge criticism of Americans internationally that we dress way too casually. But, like, sweatpants for life? Yeah. Have we not simply innovated? Dude, as as a colleague of mine once said... I didn't choose the snug life. The snug life chose me. I like getting snug. I like wearing comfortable clothes. It might just be a result of the pandemic that really just got me used to the idea of wearing soft pants all the time. But yeah, I went from wearing form-fitting jeans, button-up shirts to all cozy clothes all the time. You know, it actually... When we were going through the pandemic, I started observing these behaviors, you know, everyone living in their pajamas slash soft clothing. And it really, really took me back to the early Middle Ages. Ooh, tell me why. Okay. The reason is that what most people wore was very loose fitting pants and very loose tunics. And, you know, you just tie stuff up oh. with the cord belt or something similar because that is the practical thing to wear when you're working. When you're working out in the field. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, you can't wander around with fitted clothing and nylons and, well, not nylons, stockings. Nylons are a 20th century invention, and thank you. Yeah, like form-fitting <laughs> slacks. You can't do your work in that. You you can't do physical field. labor in that. Mm-mm. And I felt very strongly that we were coming back to our roots <laughs> <laughs> in in becoming sweat-panted again. That's a really good point. And you know what? In that case, let's embrace it. I say let's take it back to the 15th century. Yeah. Dude, there is no reason that we should work more days than a medieval peasant and no reason that we should dress more uncomfortably than a medieval peasant. Now, Laura, you once told me how much we work versus how much a medieval peasant works. Can you remind me how much the ratio is again? Oh, yeah, yeah. And um, you can Google this to your heart's content. Medieval peasants worked about half the year. Which is insane. But really all that was necessary because harvest season only lasts for a certain period of time and planting season only lasts for a certain period of time. And uh, Catholics have so many holidays, holy days, that you're required to take off work for quite some time. Mm. Now, when I say that they only worked half the year, I mean that they were only required to work half the year. Many medieval peasants had additional jobs that they gave themselves. They would cultivate their own farms. They would cultivate their own um, artisan projects. They would travel to Mecca, which was very, very common. We have this idea that people 
basically 500 to 1,000 years ago didn't really travel anywhere, no more than like nine miles from where they were born. And that was true for most things. Mm. But in fact, it was very common for people being deeply religious to travel to holy lands. And this is why the Knights Templar exist. They weren't some sort of fighting order. They were actually a protection agency for people traveling to holy lands for for religious reasons. And you would donate to them over the course of your life to support their ongoing mission. And also because you had the assumption that at some point you would need the Knights Templar to shepherd you to and from uh, whatever holy land you happened to be going to, whether it was in Europe to see a particular relic or deeper, deeper into Jerusalem, which was the thing that you had to do if you were rich, basically. So were the Knights Templar a sort of traveling security force if you wanted to visit some holy land of your religion? Is that what yeah. I understand? Like yeah, if you were they, were, they were security They were security. You know, that's not how I interpret them, honestly. Right? Like the idea we have of them in the modern age is really, really romantic because the Victorians reimagined the Knights Templar as sort of these holy warriors who were involved in the Crusades. But the level to which they were ever involved in the Crusades was as a security force for individuals going into that land. Because, you know, there wasn't a centralized authority to have police officers or... Highway Patrol. In the Roman period, the Roman army did perform the the Mm. function of keeping the roads pretty clear of brigands. But after the fall of the Western Roman Empire, you're on your own, kid. So you want to stay away from highwaymen? You got your Knights Templar. They'll fight them. It's just a really interesting period of time. And our ideas around that period of time are informed by romantic Victorian ideas. So let me get this straight. Roman Empire exists. There's mm-hmm. a lot of protection. There's a lot of infrastructure. You don't really need to worry about the roads as much. Roman Empire falls. Now roads are problematic. They're dangerous. You need Knights Templar if you're going to be traveling. Or personal security. Or personal security. Um, if you were a merchant, you probably had your own security forces. The Knights Templar are there specifically for holy pilgrimages. Mm. That's fun. I didn't know that's what they were for. And going back to the... Peasants only having to work six months out of the year. Yes, please. The question that really haunts me here is, could they afford to live for 12 months of the year only having to work six months out of the year? Well, that is kind of what's interesting about Mm. Europe. There wasn't any money in Europe. Mm -hmm. Like, there honestly wasn't very much money at all. So that's barter economy times. Uh. Certainly, you're dealing with a certain level of privation, but you don't make money. You acquire a portion of goods that you've produced gotcha. and you use that to pay for things. Gotcha, gotcha. Or maybe so- you make something and that pays for things. Or maybe you have a goat and you sell the goat milk and that will give you that will give you barter power. So throughout those six months of the year, they're getting paid in barterable goods. Like they're they're getting barterable goods that they can then trade with other people is that they're only really getting paid like once a year officially after oh, harvest oh i see and then so, they're kind of yeah, doing their own thing they're running their own little they run their own savings system. and they probably have additional little cottage industries that's where it originates from uh stuff you make at home to supplement their farming income gotcha and gotcha. a lot of them are serfs or tenant farmers which means that they kind of have room and board taken care of for their labor And that's what the required six months out of the year is. You work part of your week on the manor lord's land 
And then you have your own time to work on your land. Like throughout those six months, you mm-hmm. can stay at the Mandalord's land? And then no, you can stay there the whole the year. The whole year? Yeah, that's part of the contract. Oh, like, that's sweet. I love that. Is it? <laughs> well, I, I love the idea. Okay, yeah. The, like, it sounds okay also. on paper. It's not a <laughs> bad deal in and of itself, but you are completely subject to the Manor Lord. Mm. Like he, he runs essentially what is the law of the land. He has rules. He has ways of doing things. The knights work for him. If you have a problem, you don't get to go to the king's court. You go basically to talk to the manor lord. No kidding. So if you have a good manor lord, it's a sweet deal for sure. But depending on the personality of the individual in charge, it could be real bad news. How different is that from, say, indentured servitude? It's not So it it is basically. Yeah. So slavery as a concept has evolved over time to be different contractually, but not always different in practice. There's credible archaeological evidence to suggest that the first settlements were slave empires built around producing beer. So people would be like stolen from their little tribes, put inside these cities where they were essentially slaves who performed the manufacture of beer, Mm -hmm. room and board, blah, blah, blah. This evolved into a society where there were free men and slaves, Mm. and this evolved even further into the medieval manor house serfdom situation, Mm -hmm. where people are contracted onto the land through families and in some form of contractual commercial agreement. So with the advent of law, technical things changes around the situation where you're living on someone else's land and performing labor for them. Mm -hmm. You have more or fewer rights depending on the era of history and the location. And indentured servitude is different in so much as it's not strictly agricultural labor, strictly within the context of a manner-based system of commercial activity. Gotcha, gotcha. So you can be an indentured servant really anywhere But indentured servitude is a post-medieval form of of labor contract, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it does make sense. So the manor lord situation, the serfdom situation where you lived on the manor lord's land, that is medieval time. Yeah, medieval and a little bit before. Medieval and a little before. And all of the indentured servitude stuff I'm talking about, that is post-medieval. Okay, got it. Yeah, um, tenant farmers show up after serfdom. Mm. Serfdom is generally pre-Black Plague. Mm -hmm. It's not slavery the way that we would recognize it as Americans who who experienced chattel slavery in Mm -hmm. our history. It's not quite that, but it's not super duper different from that. Your family lives on the land and you have to stay on the land Mm. unless you get permission from your manor lord to like go do a holy pilgrimage or go into town to get stuff. It's an old form of Christian slavery, Mm. if you will. But after the Black Death, there was a lot of labor competition because so many of the workers had died that people could leave and go to other farms to get higher wages. And that's when the new system of tenant farming shows up where people agree on wages. So it's sort of compensated rather than before when you were just given room, board, and a plot of land for yourself to cultivate as well as needing to perform labor on the manor's larger lands. Mm. Now, I'm curious. You said the word manor lord a lot. Were there manor ladies, girl boss, etc.? No, or, or was it mostly manor lords at that time? Oh, because of the way 
European power structures were structured, man or lord is going to be your guy. Gotcha, there aren't gotcha. no instances of the wife of the man or lord having a great deal of power because men or lords would frequently get folded into war efforts. And there were a lot of medieval wars going around. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, there were undoubtedly girl bosses for periods of years at a time. But we don't know that much about them. Mm. There's not a glut of information, like primary source information about the comings and goings of the manor house because that was before literacy was very, very common. Mm -hmm. So Not a lot of people who could write things down. Yeah, the wars of reformation mm -hmm. are when we start seeing a highly literate populace. And the reason that they're literate is so that they can read the Bible in their vernacular language. So how do we know anything about the manor lords in that time frame? I assume we had some people who were literate who wrote it down from their perspective. Oh yeah, there were always accountants. Mm, ah, the accountants. There Someone's... have been accountants for as long as there have been things. Like even in neolithic empires like the beer slave empires i'm talking about there was someone like cuneiformly counting the amounts of beer that was produced oh yeah they got like hieroglyphics that they're just like stamping into the wall like all right this person consumed five eagle's heads worth of beer and they owe this person three eagle heads worth of beer by the end of this quarter by the end of this harvest <laughs> yeah basically yeah. <laughs> like people keep track of their goods you know, people are surprisingly consistent. What do, they, what do we do from the beginning of time? We account things. We write things down so we keep a tally of it. Also, we like to get drunk. We like to get sloshed. Beer, oh, yeah. Dude, forever. beer was... Beer initiated an incredible leap forward in terms of civilization building. Oh, I, I don't yeah. know if it's like morally superior versus hunting, hunting and gathering or civilization. But the second someone came up with beer... Everyone was like, oh, we like that. That has value. I would like to buy that very much. And so naturally, industrial producers of the era were like, okay, I'm going to concentrate some labor and make a lot of this valuable resource to sell so that I can acquire more goods. Well, yeah, because as you've mentioned, as we've talked about before, beer not only does it make you less sober, kind of gives you a break from sobriety. Mm -hmm. It also can be stored over long periods of time, whereas water cannot. Yeah, yeah. It's shelf stable for a very long period yeah. of time. It has a lot of nutrients. So you can live off this stuff. It's very much like bread, only more stable. Also, it has that pleasure element. It is an incredible object in human history. And for from, all of its utilities. And from what I recall, it may have been the medieval time where people were basically treating it like bread. Everyone yeah. was drunk all of the time. Kids included. Everyone. I mean, not just medieval Europe. We're talking ancient Egypt, too. Uh, oh, all the way back to ancient Egypt? Oh, yeah, yeah. Most oh, people in ancient Egypt were paid in beer. They were a wheat-producing nation, so like they were the breadbasket oh yeah. of the ancient world. Lots of money coming in, lots of culture coming and going. Like they were New York, but also the people who worked in ancient Egypt had the benefit of being paid or producing their own beer, which gave them a really, really stable food supply. And that's great. That means that the population is always high. Everyone's always pretty healthy. And funnily enough, if you look at ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, all the little people have little bellies, right? Yeah, they do, huh? That's because they were always consuming grains and they were always consuming beer. And that's, they had little bellies. Which, as we know, is pretty calorie dense. Very calorie dense. But in this context, without the societal pressure to be thin, 
this was good. It was an attractive quality. You it know, was a sign of health. It's interesting because in modern society, we think about over drinking as a contributing factor to a lot of health issues. We're like, don't drink too much because it does cause health issues if you're drinking a lot. But in this particular historical context, if you had beer, you could stay alive. Oh, and yeah. if you didn't, there maybe weren't as many, I don't know, maybe there weren't as many food options available at the time. So like you had to drink your beer yeah. to stay alive. Stable food sources were very rare in the ancient world. First and foremost, I would like to point out that beer at the time had like a 2% alcohol rate. So oh, that's like, nothing. calm down. It's like kombucha. Dude, that's, that's <laughs> lighter than kombucha. That's like a, that's like a lacrosse. <laughs> Sir, what kind of lacrosse are you drinking? Don't worry about it. They have spicy ones. They have, <laughs> they have extra spice. Well, lacrosse is already spicy water, but a alcoholic lacrosse is an extra spicy lacrosse, but it does exist. Yeah. Yeah. So in the ancient world, food was pretty scarce. Mm -hmm. It's not till the Middle Ages that we have the agricultural technologies developed that make food supplies greater in number just in general. And so that's like the fallow field technologies of just rotating your crops so that your soil always has enough nutrients to grow. And also the plow, which made cultivation easier and quicker. In the Middle Ages, we see populations go up quite high historically because of these evolutions in agricultural technology. So ancient world, you're not assured a lot of food, except in Egypt, where like you're just making it, mm. making it everywhere. And mm. in the ancient world, beer isn't considered a very alcoholic drink or an intoxicating drink. It's more nutritious because they have wine. And wine has a much higher alcohol content. And interestingly, the consumption of wine is usually done by watering it down as well. Oh, no kidding. To, to lower the alcohol content. Because even back then, no one thought it was cute to be sloshed. Yeah. But on the other side of the coin, with the temperate people watering down their wine, the intemperate people were adding poppy seeds to their wine. Holy cow. Yeah. Holy cow. Okay. All right. So they're they're having like a really high time. Oh, yeah. Cleopatra <laughs> is famous for this. She loved her opioids and she would always have opium wine. Opium wine. Jeez, that sounds insanely strong. I imagine that it was. <laughs> Can you imagine? Just going to start my Friday night with some, you know, some light opium wine. <laughs> right. God, Cleopatra. <laughs> Get turnt. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, the image that I always have in my head, the perennial image of Cleopatra is her reclining on some beautiful gold setting, covered in gold, just dazzling, surrounded by courtesans and, and eunuchs and her staff and her husband. And just everyone is just having an amazing time. It's like one giant Gatsby party all the time. At least that's the image that I have of her. So oh, dude. That, yeah, it is. Fair. It is good to be a Ptolemy. Yeah. <laughs> Even if it means, if I remember correctly, marrying your cousin. I think her cousin uh, her was... Brother, uh, her brother, actually. That's she right. married her brother and then she won a civil war against him <laughs> to take full power in the country. Man, taking sibling rivalry to the next level. I'll tell truly, you what. Truly. Tell you what. <laughs> that's... Oh my gosh. Beer, man. We've loved to get sloshed for as long as we could keep records. And it's just fun because... You know, obviously it is important to stay healthy and drinking too much alcohol in today's modern 8% beer can be detrimental to your health. But back then beer was almost water, like 2% beer. And the fact that if you didn't drink it, you really don't have a lot of options for staying alive. So maybe there are some health impacts from drinking 
2% beer most of your life in Egypt, but is it preferable to not living? No, I think... Do you, you want to eat? I want to. I want to eat. So you drink. You drink your two percent beer constantly. Oh man, that that's. I love that. That's a whole other world. I know. We started with soft pants and we came all the way here. <laughs> we really did. Soft yeah. pants to the telemies. Telemies to the telemies. Ptolemy. The tel. Soft pants to Cleopatra. There we go. There we go. I yeah. love it. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost impossible to pronounce Ptolemy unless you've heard it a million times Ptolemy. because it's got Ptolemy. that little P in front of it. Yeah. I want to call it Telemy, Telemite, Telluride. I, I don't know. It, my brain doesn't want to pronounce it correctly. Um, Good. Don't. But yeah, like soft pants to Cleopatra, did a deep dive in history into beer, into written technology, into a lot of time talking about manor lords and how mm. that worked and how working if you were a serf working on a manor lord's land it wasn't too different from indentured servitude it just predated indentured servitude so laura thank you so much for sharing i feel like i learned like i got like a free history class today oh yeah that's that's the laura guarantee right. <laughs> you near me long enough you will learn history right against your will whether you like it or not whether you like it or not <laughs> but this time i did like it okay i'm glad yeah. i I enjoyed talking about it. I hope you enjoyed listening. Excellent. Thank you, resident history historian. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you to our resident historian, Laura. That said, folks, uh, I think we're going to call it a day for now. But please tune in to the next one and catch you on the next lunch break. Bye. Bye. This has been Stephen. And Laura. Thanks for tuning in to Midday Musings, the podcast where we talk about all the things on our mind. Be sure to follow us on Spotify and jump into the conversation in our polls and Q&As. We would love to hear from you. Catch you next lunch break.